Of the four New Testament Gospels, the book of John is, well, it's different. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it presents a retelling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But John is notably distinct in what it emphasizes, and what it includes, and what it leaves out, in the order and structure of its account, and in the image of Jesus it constructs. One of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, famously characterized the differences between the gospel narratives in this way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote down the bodily things, the physical facts, whereas John, who was encouraged by his pupils and irresistibly moved by the Spirit, wrote a spiritual gospel. In this teaching series, we'll explore John's distinctive spiritual gospel, and along the way, we will reacquaint ourselves with his overtly theological retelling of Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. This is the spiritual gospel. This is John chapter 7. I'll read the first handful of verses to kind of set the stage for the narrative. Remember, as we approach this story, John is a masterful storyteller, and every detail that he is including has some sort of relevance for the way he's telling the story and what he's wanting to accomplish by telling the story. Okay, so this is John chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. It says, After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus's brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world." For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Just a real quick side note here. I'm not going to pick up on this in in the sermon here, but you can see how the brothers are setting up Jesus in this sense. John is letting us know that at this point, they do not believe in what Jesus is about, yet they are asking him to go down south to Judea for this festival to do signs in public. Okay, and without John's commentary, we might not have any idea how they were viewing Jesus at this point in his ministry. Okay, verse six, it says, therefore Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people but no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. The word of God for the people of God. There's a lot in that text. Um, There's a lot in this chapter as well. And like I mentioned, I'm, I'm using this as an entryway into one specific point. But before we get there, I'd like to take a moment and talk about the Avengers Of course not, Evan. He's asking if I'm going to give you any spoilers. Of course not. I haven't even seen the movie yet. I'm just here to talk about the cultural phenomenon that is the Avengers. How many of you guys have seen the Avengers? Okay, a handful of you. I will join your league tomorrow at 10.30 a.m. I've got a little bit of me time scheduled, and I will be in Regal Cinema watching Endgame. 
I've spent a lot of time preparing for this. Now, I'm not a huge nerd. I like some nerdy type things. I'm, I'm really a nerd when it comes to biblical studies and books and stuff like that. But with regard to the Avengers, it hasn't really been my thing. I've watched some movies as they've come along, but I had to do a lot of catching up in order to prepare myself for the cultural phenomenon that is Endgame. And I'm not alone in this. I did see a couple of statistics. I believe on opening night, it grossed $150 million. And in the first five days, it has been out internationally. We're talking billions of dollars. Well, billions singular, excuse me, 1.2 or so billion dollars. That's insane. But I've had to do a lot of catching up. And, and to do this, I've had to... Um, consult some nerd sources, things like this, that lay out the whole 22-movie Marvel Cinematic... Uh, what's the word? Universe, right? So I'm, I'm trying to track through all of this. And I watched a lot of this a long time ago, back when it came out. But really, I was hanging out right here, trying to get ready for Endgame. And I'm, I'm, I'm renting these movies, and I'm, I'm watching stuff, and I'm having a great time, and I'm preparing myself for what I believe to be a defining moment in my entertainment career. Can we call it that? Are we on safe ground calling it a career of sorts? I was excited about this, and I tried to do my due diligence by not having the movie spoiled for me, but I found myself on Twitter on Friday, and none other than LaShawn McCoy, former running back of the Philadelphia Eagles, my favorite team, just has no context whatsoever, and he says, and completely spoiled the movie for me. Can you, can you just empathize with me for a moment, as Brene Brown would say? You see me in the hole, and you say, I see you down there. I'm gonna come down and sit with you for a minute, and we can just, we can wrestle with these ideas. We can rumble with some vulnerability in that I am struggling with not being able to watch Endgame in all of its glory because LaShawn McCoy blew it for me. I have vowed as a fantasy football owner never to draft LaShawn McCoy ever again. He is on my list of untouchables for this. I will not forgive him anytime soon. Now, here's, here's the, the reason why I'm talking about this. In order for me, this is a real bad pastor moment, but in order for me to thoroughly enjoy Endgame, I've got to know the backstory, right? There's things that I have to understand about the characters and about the plot development and about who's doing what and what's going on. Now, you could, I imagine, if this is not your scene, you could show up to Regal, pay your $7,000 to go see this movie, sit there for three hours or so with a bucket of popcorn, maybe some Sour Patch Kids, a massive soda that no one should be drinking ever, and you're just there having a great time. You could enjoy it. But if you don't know all the backstory, there's things that you are going to miss. There's work that you have to do in order to appreciate this movie for all that it is. Now, I would like to tell you, that's my picture of LaShawn McCoy, that tonight I am hoping to be like LaShawn McCoy in that I want to ruin this story for you forever. I don't want you to read this story in the same way ever again because I want to bring to you all of the background information that you need to understand what Jesus is doing 
at the Festival of Tabernacles in this moment. Now, unlike LaShawn McCoy, I'm not just gonna give you a blurb on a tweet. I'm gonna do the work with you to bring us up to speed so that we can understand what Jesus is talking about and how monumental it would have been in the moment that he is saying these things at this festival. Okay, so the point tonight is to see specifically what this Jewish festival of tabernacles is all about and to recognize that John is attempting to place us in Jerusalem at a specific moment with a specific um, festival happening and all of the background that is going on that John doesn't bother to tell you because he's assuming his audience already knows. But we do not because we are now 2,000 years removed and there's things that we miss when we don't understand the backstory. There's things that we miss when we don't understand the first 21 movies of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So tonight, as we're looking at the Jewish festival of tabernacles or the Jewish festival of booths, Sukkot, uh, we have to understand what is going on in this moment for us to appreciate what Jesus is saying and doing. What we learn from Leviticus chapter 23 about this festival in particular is that it is a fall festival. It is one that happens after the harvest. It's part celebration for what has just taken place and part anticipation of the next season of the harvest. This is six months or so after Passover which if we, if we follow the plot line of the book of John, we've just seen Jesus in, in um, this area celebrating Passover, not too far in the distant past, but it's at least six months in between these moments in the previous chapters of John and now here in John chapter seven. One Jewish historian named Josephus estimated that about 2.7 million people would go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Festival of Tabernacles. This is one of the three pilgrimage festivals that Jews were expected to go and to participate in. And it was one of extreme jubilation, of celebration. People would be there to celebrate what God has done. In the beginning, it was a festival of the harvest, but it became known as a festival that would commemorate God's provision for his people in the wilderness. It's attached to the Exodus in this way. After Israel has left from Egypt in their servitude and in their slavery, they, they cross through the Red Sea and they are in God's care and God is providing for them as they're wandering through the wilderness for 40 years and God is providing for them. And it's for this reason that while they're in the wilderness, having these temporary homes, if you will, that when they go to the festival of tabernacles or the festival of booths or Sukkot in the Hebrew language, that they would build temporary shelters out of leaves and brush and these sorts of things. They would line the streets during this seven to eight day festival. There's actually some... Um, some talk as to how to reckon the, the time of this festival of tabernacles, if, it's, uh, if we're counting the seven days or eight days, because the, the texts seem to go back and forth on that. According to the book of Numbers, there's extensive sacrifices that are being offered. According to the book of Deuteronomy, the law is, is read to the people in this moment during this celebration. And even beyond the Pentateuch, even beyond those first five books, this festival, it takes on a life of its own. And certain Old Testament texts and intertestamental texts talk about what 
this festival was about and how people would just be so exuberant in praise. There was also during this seven-day festival, there was three processions that were made. One of the processions involved the singing of the halal. These are a handful of, of psalms from the book of Psalms, Psalms 113 through 118, that oftentimes show up during festival seasons. But these are the things that people would be singing, these select um, passages from the halal. And the people are carrying a citron in their left hand to symbolize the harvest and a lulav or a branch that comprises of three myrtle, two willow, and one palm branch that are tied in a bunch. And they've got this piece of fruit in their left hand and this branch of leaves in their right hand. And they were waved during the singing of the first, the 25th, and the 29th verses of Psalm 18. And here you can see what this might have looked like, this citron fruit in the left hand and these branches in the right hand. And as people are processing into Jerusalem, they would be chanting and shouting and singing, Hodu la Adonai ki tov, ki la olam, Chasdo. Chasdo there is this term that means uh, sometimes it's translated steadfast love, but it's really acts of commitment or faithfulness. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love, his acts of commitment, his faithfulness is forever. They would be chanting these psalms or these verses from the psalms of Halal. Our English translation would say, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. His acts of commitment, he will show up for you. And this will keep going on and on and on. And verse 25 says, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. The, the Hebrew there, it's like, um, it's a pleading. It's a please, Lord, please save us. Please, Lord, please help us to be successful. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. And there is fanfare and there is uh, exuberant praise that's happening in these moments as people have the fruit and have the branches and they're processing into the temple courts celebrating what God has done and how God has provided for them in the past and how God will provide for them in the future. There's another procession that takes place, and some people would say that this is the most important of the processions, and this is actually where I want to camp out this evening. Craig Keener, who's a New Testament scholar, he writes, central to this festival of tabernacles, of Sukkot, the festival of booths, was the famous water-drawing ceremony including the procession again from the pool of Siloam back to the temple. They're actually filling up jugs of, of water from this pool and the priests and the people, they would march in and after which the priests would pour out water and wine at the base of the altar. This is a water drawing ceremony that is typical of the festival of tabernacles or the festival of, of booths. This is not specified in the gospel of John. This is expected that we know this as readers. These are the things that would identify what's going on here. The third procession, which we won't talk about tonight, is actually there's a lighting of these sacred candles that takes place. There's things that, that go on with the processions, with the fruit and the harvest and the, the water drawing and also light. And this will be important for us next week. But with this water drawing ceremony, there's, there's implications that, that take place that go back into Old Testament history. For example, in Zechariah 13, we have texts that say on that day, namely on the day when Yahweh will show up. 
and bring about his reign here on earth. Well, he will set everything right. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. It gets even more specific in Zechariah 14. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it east to the Dead Sea and half of it to the west to the Mediterranean Sea in summer and in winter. These are like end times sort of prophecies or ideas that when God shows up to do what God will do, water will spring forth from Jerusalem and go out to the ends of the earth. And this seems to be what is being projected as the priests are going to the pool of Siloam and getting this this water and bringing it back in procession with these people that are praising and excited and dumping the offerings, the libations on the altar, looking towards what God will do. We've got other texts in Joel chapter three. It says, then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. In that day, in that day when Yahweh shows up and puts the world to rights, the mountains will drip new wine and the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house in Jerusalem and will water the valley of Acacias. This water imagery is so important throughout the Old Testament that at the end, streams will burst forth out of Jerusalem to the known world. This one is incredible. This is Ezekiel chapter 47. This is in a set of texts from Ezekiel 40 through 48. When God has left the temple, The prophecy is envisioning a time when God will come back to the temple. Remember that in the Old Testament time period, the temple is the place where God dwells. It's where his presence is seen and felt and experienced. And God has left that place. And now they're envisioning a moment when God will return. And this is how they go about talking about some aspects of this return in Ezekiel 47. It says, the man brought me back to the entrance to the temple. This is Ezekiel in the midst of this ongoing vision. He's being brought back to the entrance of the temple. And I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east for the temple. It faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east. And the water was trickling from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and he led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in a river that no one could cross. When God shows back up and gets back in the temple, water will gush from its center. He continues, Son of man, do you see this? Do you see this vision? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. Please pay attention to this. We've got water gushing out of the temple and now we've got trees trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down to the Arabah where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. I visited the Dead Sea. 
it was the most strange experience because it's so salty that when you get into the water, it's like you immediately float. Your legs kick up and you just start to float. I can't float on water. I just, I sink. Me and water is not a, a good mix. I have a healthy fear of the ocean. Some of you cannot understand that. But the Dead Sea, it's, it's lifeless. Now, all around the Dead Sea, you'll see people hawking uh, like uh, lotions and things that you can, like the Dead Sea scrubs and stuff. So there's, there's some good benefits from it. But at the same time, it's, it's not where you go for life. But here, it's entering the Dead Sea and the salty water is becoming fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large amounts of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from Engedi to En claim there will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. This, this water is reconstituting and restoring the death of the Dead Sea. The swamps and the marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Fruit trees, catch it, fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fall. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. In this, uh, in this, this water-carrying Ceremony And in these Old Testament texts, specifically in Ezekiel, we're seeing hints of the story of the Garden of Eden. Let me read a couple verses to you. It's so cool. In Genesis chapter 2, if you compare Genesis 2, 4 and following with Genesis 1, the stories, they've got some, some things that we got to work out. But in Genesis 2, God is creating man and puts man in this garden. And then it says, a river flows from Eden to, the, to water the garden. From there, it divides into four headwaters. The name of the first river is the Pishon. It flows around the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The land's gold is pure, and the land also has sweet-smelling resins and gemstones. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It flows around the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris flowing east of Assyria. And the name of the fourth is the river Euphrates. We skip over that every time we read Genesis 2 because we have no idea what's going on. But all throughout Old Testament history, there's links here to the source of water that flows out from where God's presence is. And for Ezekiel in the prophecy, he's saying, it will be like Eden again. There's hints of restoration. We will not be in the wilderness left to die. We will not be alone. God has not forsaken us. There's hints of this story that's reaching its grand conclusion. In fact, one author says this. This is Michael Gorman. He says, that the climax of the book of Revelation, the New Testament and the entire Bible, the whole story of God and also the story of humanity is seen in the end of Revelation, which speaks like this. Angel showed 
May the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month and leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Water is important. And during the festival of tabernacles, the festival of booths, this time when the temporary shelters are being constructed and priests are going to the pool of Siloam to pour out water, they're tapping into this sort of motif. In fact, this, um, this gathering of the water is referred to as the Simchat Beit HaShoeva, which is the celebration of water drawing, which is actually a prayer during this festival that rains will continue to fall. And as these priests are filling up their golden vessels and they're, they're going from the pool back to the temple to pour it out, they are asking for these end time visions to come to pass. And this is when Jesus shows up in the first century as all of this fanfare is going on and as all of these priests are going back and forth watering the altar and Jesus, it says, on the last day of the festival, he stands up and he says, all who are thirsty should come to me. We've seen all of this imagery and this, this stuff that's happening back from the Old Testament. Out of the, the center of the temple, water will gush to fill the earth. We've seen the priests going back and forth. It says that on the first six days, they go back and they make one trip and they dump the water on the altar. And on the seventh day, they, they, they proceed around the altar seven times and they're dumping water and wine on the altar. And you can see Jesus perhaps off to the side as all of this is going on. And he stands up on the last, most greatest day of the festival and he says if you're thirsty come to me and the priests are over there dumping out all of the water and Jesus says all who believe in me should drink as the scriptures said concerning me rivers of living water will flow out from within him now, note, I picked the Common English Bible because there's a lot of discrepancy here. Some people would actually say that the person who drinks of the water that Jesus gives them from their belly, there are these springs of living water that will flow. I'm kind of a, of a divided mind here, but it seems that if you carry the imagery across, it seems better that Jesus is the one through whom the water is gushing because this follows in with this Old Testament imagery of the temple in the very presence of God that is delivering this water. All who are thirsty should come to me. All who believe in me should drink. As the scripture said concerning me, rivers of living water will flow out from within him. There's also a complicating factor here that nobody knows what text he's talking about because this isn't clear in the Old Testament where it says rivers of living water will flow out from within him. But Jesus is saying in the midst of this show, it's me. The temple, it's me. The, the water, it's me. Everything that you ever needed is, is me. 
and we're here celebrating all of this stuff and there's so much, the processions that are happening and, and the, the things that are going on, it's, it's me. And in the first few verses that we looked at, there's, there's a division of mind. Some people think he's a good guy and some people think he's crazy and he's stirring up the crowds and Jesus is showing up at this most climactic moment of the festival saying all of this stuff that's happening, it's just pointing to me and I can actually fulfill it for you. If you believe in me, I will give you living water. I will give you fresh running water. He's not talking literally, but he's saying that this whole thing, this whole procession, it, it points to something greater and it's pointing to Jesus. Raymond Brown says, Jesus says in this moment that these rivers of living water will flow from his own body, which is the new temple. Now those who thirst need only come to Jesus and through belief, the water of life will be theirs. LaShawn McCoy screwed me. And what I could have done, perhaps, is to send off a tweet that would say what I'm about to show you here, because this is the big the big climax, the big reason why we, we've talked about all this stuff, it's not just to put Jesus in his context where he says, everyone who's thirsty should come to me in light of the priests and all of the golden vessels and the water being dumped. It's not just that. It's that John is even moving us one step further because for John, this water symbology, it keeps coming up over and over as if to say that Jesus has something with regard to these Old Testament texts we keep hearing about the temple and all this water that's going to be gushing out to, to, to bless the world. But John wants us to see something else. And in a detail that only John has for us, he leads us to this point. When he develops the crucifixion of Jesus, we see this, uh, this moment when the, the Centurions are to break the legs of the victims so that they will be unable to push themselves up anymore to breathe. But instead with Jesus, they don't do that in keeping with scripture, but also beyond that, according to John, it says, when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus's side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and only in John water out of his belly, if you will. And when Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles saying, it's me, I'm the water. I'm the one that will be flowing from the temple. I am the presence of God. John turns the dial just a little bit more. And in his last moments, when Jesus has passed away, and the spear goes into his side, only John says, blood and water. And it puts into perspective, and Jesus says, all who are thirsty should come to me. All who believe in me should drink. And we don't get the Feast of Tabernacles. Like that's, that's not our liturgical calendar. We can go back and we can, we can play around, but hopefully we can see here with, with the crucifixion of Jesus, what John is attempting to do is he's maybe attempting to say, he was right. Everyone who is thirsty should come and drink from the living water that he provides, the living water that has been provided through his self 
sacrificial death to right the wrongs of this world and to invite us in to participate with him. I don't know how um, I would encourage you to apply that. I know that as you leave here and you go into punch your time card tomorrow, that there hasn't been any like uproarious uh, life self-help skills that we've gained here this evening. But I'm hopeful that the more that we reflect on who Jesus is, the more that it shapes who we are. Shapes the way that we think and the way that we talk and the way that we approach people. The message that we have perhaps at our work, in our classes, at our dinner table. And the more that we reflect on King Jesus and the way that he was so misunderstood as he was here and still remains misunderstood in many ways today, I'm hopeful that we can begin to walk in clarity and boldness and hope. The call that he gives remains the same. All who are thirsty should come to him. Wherever you are and whatever you're dealing with, that's still very much true for you this evening. That in Jesus, what we have is hope. What we have is reconciliation. What we have is living, fresh, flowing water that will lead us to life and life abundantly, beginning right here and right now. Thanks for listening to this week's teaching from the Restoration Project. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to join us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. If you'd like more information on TRP, please visit our website at www.restoresby.org. And for previous sermons, check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com forward slash restoresby or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. See you next week.